Amen. Well, good morning, church. It's great to be with you this morning. If you have a Bible with you, please open up to Luke chapter 10. Uh, that's where we're going to be reading from and learning from this morning. Uh, my name is Andrew. I am the pastor of Village Church South Belfast. Um, we have been a church uh, meeting just off the Omer Road for uh, the last five and a bit years. We had our celebrate our first, our fifth birthday in October just past. Um, we were planted out of Village Church East Belfast, um, which has been a church plant. Um, which was planted in Belfast uh, over 10 years ago now, 12 years ago. Um, I'd like to just give you a wee bit of a flavor of, of our church and where I'm coming from so as we can get to know one another. Um, and also, the, when I go to preach in other churches, one of the things I like to do is, is just ask you to pray for us. We are five years old. Now, what's a five-year-old child like? I mean, they can walk and they can maybe wash their face and hands, but they still need a lot of looking after, don't they? Um, and we still need a lot of looking after. We're a toddler church. We're just moving into primary school, and we've got a lot to learn. And so we value your prayers. Um, I'm here with my wife, Haley today. We have two kids, uh, Finley, who is nine, and Abigail, who is six, going on 16, and um, uh, girls are different, I don't know, um, um, and uh, we have a dog called George, if that interests you. Our church is made up of a mixture of people. The Ormond Road is a, is a really kind of uh, a melting pot of all kinds of people in Belfast. It's probably the most mixed uh, neighborhood area of, of Belfast, uh, and so we have people who have lived in the area for generations, and we also also have young professionals who have just left Queens or Jordanstown or University of Ulster are moving there and are, are raising young families. And we have lots of foreign nationals, lots of people from Asia and Africa and all over the place uh, coming to live and work in that area. And if I can ask you to pray for us, I'd ask you to pray for a, a ministry we started uh, back in um, September, um, which is our TOTS group. And the TOTS group is, I'm sure, I, I, I think you maybe even have one, I'm not sure, but lots of, you'll be familiar with that, what that is. It meets on uh, Friday mornings, every Friday morning, and we are having a great response from the community. Uh, lots of people from uh, all faiths and none coming in to be with us and have fellowship. And what that has allowed us to do is, is open up doors for the gospel. You remember when Paul is writing to the Colossian church when he's in prison, what does he say? He says, pray that a door may open for us for the gospel. Um, and so we're, that's what I'm asking you to do for us. Pray that doors will open for the gospel as we welcome these uh, people from all walks of life, all nationalities, uh, India, Greece, parts of Africa, everywhere. Um, so pray that doors would open for the gospel and we would see gospel fruit and we would see people come to know and love the Lord Jesus. Can you do that for us? Um, would you commit to pray for us? We would value that. Um, let's read from uh, Luke chapter 10. We're going to start at, at verse 25, and we're going to all go all the way down to verse 37. This will be a passage that maybe, uh, you know, a lot of us, if you've been in church, will be familiar with, um, but still it is the Lord's Word. And we're looking forward to hear what he has to say to us today. Uh, we are in a series in Luke's gospel in our church. And, and so uh, I, uh, our church valued uh, this passage. And so I wanted to bring it here and share it with you this morning. Let's read from Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. That's put the Lord Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he 
desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. Then he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. And may the Lord bless the public reading of his word. Now, there's no doubt that the parable of the Good Samaritan is, is, is among Jesus' most well-known uh, teachings. I would say you'd be hard-pushed to find anybody in the streets around here, in Carrickfergus, or even in Belfast, uh, that, that hadn't heard at least of the phrase, the Good Samaritan. We have a charity in, in, in our society called the Samaritans, which are to help others in need. But I would say that when, what happens a lot is that the parable that Jesus tells here is taken out of context. Usually, we just hear a version of this story and miss that it is actually part of a conversation. So we know the priest and the Levi, we know the Samaritan, we know the innkeeper, we know the, the guy who was beaten up, we know the robbers. But we miss that this was part of a conversation. And if we take the story out of its context, we can lose what it's really about, and it just becomes a fable to tell us how to be a good neighbor, or even worse. We can take it in a lesson in, 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 in trying to do the right thing in order to win the approval of God. But if we read the passage as a whole, we see that it is first and foremost a conversation about eternal life. A conversation about eternal life. In verse 25, you'll see that the lawyer stood up and, and put Jesus to the test, saying, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, there aren't many more important conversations than you can have than conversations about eternal life. But it's a strange question that the lawyer asks him, isn't it? Because he says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What shall I do to receive an inheritance. And the thing about an inheritance is that it is nothing to do with what you do, right? An inheritance is entirely to the family you belong to. An inheritance is not about doing, it's about belonging. And so Jesus seeks to show this man that he is thinking about things the wrong way around. The question of eternal life isn't about doing, it's about belonging. And Jesus is saying that if you love God and, and if you are truly in his family, then loving others in the way described in this story will be the proof. Loving your neighbor like the Samaritan is not the way to gain eternal life. It's the actions of those who have been given eternal life. We don't love our neighbors and that gets us the inheritance of eternal life. We become heirs of eternal life through our union with Christ and out of that flows love for God and others. 
So this passage is, is not telling us how to be a good person. It's not telling us how to be good living. It's not telling us how to be good Christians. This is a conversation about eternal life. And when G- we listen to Jesus speak in this conversation, the first thing that we will receive from him is a challenge to our legalism. A challenge to our legalism. Now, the lawyer in the story wasn't a lawyer like we understand lawyers. I don't know if there's any solicitors or lawyers in the room, but this guy isn't someone who charges you 200 quid for a five-minute conversation. He is an expert in the Old Testament. He's an expert in God's law. He would have been a a, a prominent, at least a a, a very well-educated expert in the Scriptures. He's a Bible teacher. And so Jesus responds to his question by saying, well, you're the Bible teacher here. What do you think? How do you read the law? And in verse 27, we get his answer. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And this is a good answer, isn't it? This is what the Bible says in Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 18 and 19. Jesus was actually asked a very similar question, what is the greatest commandment? And he gave the same answer, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. These two commands are are the summary of the entire law. So Jesus says, you know what, you're right. You are right. If you really do love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and if you truly do love your neighbor as yourself, truly and completely, you will have eternal life. So Jesus says, go and do this. Go ahead, do it, and you will live, he says. If we perfectly fulfill the law, we will live. But of course, the problem is that our sin isn't just our disobedience. It's our sinful nature, our separation from God. Uh, We are born in sin and and lack the ability to obey the law. And the problem is that when we come to a passage like this, we think, yes, something I can do, something I can contribute, something I can take into this week and try to, to put into practice. Oh, I can try and be a good Samaritan. I can try and be a good neighbor. I can try and love my neighbor as myself. We love it when Jesus gives us things to do because we somehow think that we can earn our salvation or or, or make God like us more or win more of his approval. And we're just like the lawyer asking, what should I do? You see, it's built into our sinful nature that we think that we can somehow earn forgiveness, that we can buy grace through our very best efforts. And this is what is called legalism. But Jesus challenges our legalism by pointing out the absurdity of thinking that we are able to love God and love our neighbors perfectly. We just can't do it. The religious elite of the day, the the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and and the the teachers of the law like this man, well, they thought they had figured out the secret to eternal life. They thought that by following all their laws and by keeping themselves pure and by knowing the Bible that they could work their way into heaven. And maybe if we are honest with ourselves this morning, we feel the same. If only I can work out how to be a good Christian. If only I could do more. If only I could give more. If only I could pray more. If only I could know more uh, biblical theology. Then maybe... Maybe God will approve of me. 
But let me tell you something. Legalism is woefully inadequate to purchase God's favor. Let me say that again. Legalism is woefully inadequate to purchase God's favor. You see, legalism, trying our best to to be good, that's a simple way of putting it. Legalism only produces two outcomes. Either we become crippled by failure, or we become cursed with pride. See, some people will, will hear the command to love God and love your neighbor and actually think that they're doing a pretty good job. I have to confess that this is the category that I often fall into most. Yes, I, I love God. I come to church. I, I'm part of a community group, or I help out with, the, with, with, the, with the, the, the scheme across the road that's just been announced. I read my Bible. I think I love my neighbor pretty well. I'm, I'm generous with my money. I give to a couple of charities. I help the old lady across the street take her bins out on a Thursday night. I even volunteer at the food bank down the road every now and again. I think I'm, I'm doing a pretty good job of loving my neighbor. And this kind of person is cursed with pride. And it's a curse because this kind of person misses out on the offer of free grace that is given to us in the Lord Jesus. They think they might be saved because they are good. On the other hand, the other side of the coin of legalism, there are some people who hear the command to love God and love your neighbor, and they're just frozen stiff with fear and anxiety like a rabbit in a headlights. The weight of it seems impossible. Love God? Well, yes. I think I love God. Maybe on a good day I love God. And, and, but to love him with, with my heart and soul and mind and strength, that's impossible. I just can't do that and, and love my neighbor. I mean, I do try to be a good person, but, but how on earth can I love my neighbor as myself? That's too hard. There's no way I can do this. And so this kind of person ends up believing that, that salvation is not for them, that they can't be accepted into the Lord's kingdom because they are so unworthy. And this kind of person, crippled by failure, just like the person cursed with pride, misses out on the free grace of Jesus. What do I need to, not what do, I need to do to inherit eternal life? Well, the, the point is you can't do anything. You need the grace of Jesus. And if the standard is to love God with all our, our heart and soul and mind and strength, then, then none of us can qualify Can any of us say that we really love the Lord in this way? What about loving your neighbor as yourself? Can anyone honestly say they do this? Maybe we're fairly generous with our time and money, but but not all the time. And we certainly haven't been throughout all our lives. I mean, I hate to break it to you this morning, but you were a selfish child. And I have two under 10. I know what selfish children look like. Our daughter, uh, for a period of a few months when she was really small, the only two words she knew or seemed to know were no and mine. And when we think about the amount of time uh, through our whole lives that we spend thinking about ourselves, we can't, come anywhere, we can't say that we come anywhere close to loving our neighbor as ourselves. We just can't. And if this is the standard for receiving eternal life, then we all seriously miss the mark. Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We need something outside ourselves. We need grace. Romans 3, 23 says, we have fallen short of God's glory. But verse 24 goes on to say, we are justified by his grace as a gift. 
And if you are someone who is cursed with pride today, or if you are someone who is crippled by failure today, then there is good news that that we are all in need of grace, and that grace is freely given through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. But you see, the lawyer in the story, the lawyer in the conversation with Jesus didn't see his need for grace. He actually thinks he's in with a shot when he hears, oh, love your neighbor. Hmm. He's like, maybe I can come up with a plan to get this done. And his follow-up question to Jesus reveals something that is in all of us, and that is the sin of self-justification. Jesus not only challenges our legalism, but he reveals to us the sin of self-justification. In verse 29, look what it says. It says, but he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, uh, before I was a pastor a long time ago, I I went to university and and I did an engineering degree. And I figured out uh, somewhere along the way of that degree, uh, the minimum mark that I needed to get to come out the other side with an okay Degree. That's where I was kind of at. I figured, oh, well, here's the mark I need to get in this module, this module, this class, and so on and so on, and I can still come out with a pretty good degree. This is what we want to do in our legalism, isn't it? The lawyer wants to get the formula just right. If I can just figure out who I have to love and then who I don't have to bother loving, then I'll be justified. We just, we want to know how to do just enough to be okay. We all think that we can do just enough and we'll be justified. He was seeking to justify himself. And so we make excuses for our failures. We we blame uh, other people when we mess up. We, We minimize and hide our sin. We think, well, if I come to church and if I support the church, then surely that's enough. If, if I can just do enough to get over the line, then I'll be in. If, I can, if, if no one really knows the sin in my heart or in my mind, then I'll be enough. If my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, then I'll be accepted by God. If I can figure out who I have to love and who I don't have to love, then I'll be enough. But the truth is that no matter how hard we try, we cannot justify ourselves. It is only God who can justify him. He is the one, after all, that we have sinned against. He is the judge of all creation. And so it is only he who can make us right. Only the judge can declare declare us guilty or not guilty. And all our efforts make not even the slightest bit of difference. Uh, I remember uh, when our dog was a, a pup, he was just about a year old. Um, he is a, a Springer Collie Cross, so you can imagine he's just full of life and full of energy. Um, and uh, his, his mum was a sheepdog and his dad was a gun dog, a trained gun dog. And so he likes to retrieve and collect things and, and impress you. And we were walking by the river one day near our house, the, the towpath of the river, um, and I noticed that he had uh, brought something and left it in the path right in front of me. And as I got closer, I realized that he had killed a wee duckling and brought it as a gift for me. Now, he was doing what his DNA and his uh, breeding was telling him to do, and he was standing there looking so pleased with himself with his whole tail wagging, looking up at me like, would you please give me some recognition for this great gift I've given you? This is what it's like when we try to justify ourselves. 
When we come to God and offer him our good deeds and our best efforts, and we stand there wagging our tails and we're thinking, surely this is enough, Lord. Look how I've loved that homeless person down the street. Look how I've loved my elderly neighbor. Look look how I've loved my enemy. But our good deeds before God are like my dog bringing me a dead duck. Our good deeds count for nothing. Isaiah 64 verse 6 says that our good deeds are like filthy rags. But God is gracious and merciful. And when we come to him recognizing that we can bring nothing, he looks on us in our sin and he sees, he sees us in all our filth and he declares that on that basis, on the basis not of our good works, but on the basis of his son's perfect work, we are justified. We have no merit that we can claim for ourselves. We, we, we only can place our hope in Jesus' name. The only way to be justified is to trust in Jesus. And you see, the lawyer didn't grasp this. He, he wanted to know how he could do just enough to be justified. He wants to know what the standard is to earn eternal life. And well, Jesus wants to show him the standard that is required. And through this parable, he shows him the standard of neighbor love. The standard of neighbor love. Now, the Jericho Road was uh, 17 miles long. It was full of twists and turns and caves all along the way, the perfect place for robbers and bandits to hang out. And a man traveling this road is jumped upon by robbers. And Jesus tells him that this wasn't a stick up like, hands up, give us your money. No, 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 they seized him and stripped him and beat him and took everything that he had. He was stripped, beaten, and left for dead. Now, those details are important. The fact that he was stripped is crucial to Jesus' point. You see, in those days, clothing identified you. They told you not what job you have like in our day. If you wear a suit going to work, you might be a businessman. Or if you wear a policeman's uniform, you're hopefully a policeman. You're not doing some kind of, you know, impersonating a police officer. Or if you're wearing a nurse's uniform, you're probably a nurse. But in those days, clothing identified your status in society, if you were important or not. So when the priest came along, he can't tell how important this half-dead man is because he's been stripped. Maybe if he had been wearing important person clothes, the priest would have stopped. But his judgment of the man's status prevents him from loving the man in need. I wonder, does our judgment of people's status in life prevent us from loving them? Also, the priest is trying to look after himself. What if the robbers are still about? He doesn't want the same thing to happen to him. His self-preservation prevents him from loving the man in need. And I wonder if our self-preservation helps us from loving others. And there's also the priest's purity to consider. If he were to defile himself with this man who who was unclean, he would have been impure and unable to serve in the temple. His ideas about holiness prevent him from loving the man in need. And I wonder if our ideas about holiness prevent us from helping those in need. And so he passes by. Next comes a Levite, not quite as important as the priest, but still a religious figure. And so for very similar reasons, he passes by also. Next comes along a Samaritan. 
Now for us, the Samaritans are the good guys, but not for the Jews of Jesus' time. You see, the Jews hated the Samaritans. That the Jews, uh, the, the, in Jewish eyes, the Samaritans were, were mongrels who had disgraced the entire race. They were the lowest of the low, the worst of the worst. They were the most hated. And so you can imagine the surprise uh, to, in Jesus' listeners when it's the Samaritan who stops to help this man. This is the IRA man stopping to help the UVF man. This is the Israeli soldier stopping to help the member of Hamas. And the enemy of this wounded man uses his own wine and oil to clean and soothe his wounds. He puts him on his own donkey, meaning he now has to walk in this dangerous road. He takes him to the place of safety and covers his expenses for a couple of weeks, and then he goes one step further and makes sure that he will cover the expenses after that as well. And that's another important detail that we can't miss, because the man had no money. He was robbed. And if he couldn't pay his bill at the end, then legally, the innkeeper could have sold him into slavery to recoup his expenses that he had lost. So the Samaritan pays all the cost to save his enemy from slavery. And Jesus is saying, you want to justify yourself? You want to fulfill the law? You want to know who your neighbor is? Well, this is the standard of neighbor love, and it is a high one. Your legalism can't save you. You cannot justify yourself. There is only one person who can perfectly love others in this way. You see, there is only one true good Samaritan. Look at verse 36 with me. Jesus says, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? See, Jesus, just the perfect communicator and the perfect teacher, has turned it all on its head. The lawyer's question who, who was, who is my neighbor? But Jesus asks, who proved to be the man's neighbor? The question of inheriting eternal life isn't about how we can be a good neighbor. It's about the one who has proved himself to be our good neighbor. Do you see? Church, there is only one person who can perfectly love others in this way. There is only one true good Samaritan. And listen, I know it's tempting. It's tempting to assess ourselves when we read this story. And we ask ourselves if we are the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan. And on our bad days, we might think, oh gosh, I'm the priest today. I'm the Levite. Lord, I've messed up. And maybe on a good day, we might even dare to think that we are the Samaritan. But the truth is, brothers and sisters, that we are not the priest, we are not the Levite, and we are not the Samaritan. We are the guy who is stripped, beaten up, robbed, and left for dead, lying in the ditch. But Jesus comes along. The true good Samaritan comes along. When we were his enemy, when we had hatred towards him in our hearts, he journeys to where we are. He sees us and has compassion on us, and he moves toward us. He heals our wounds, not with oil and wine, but with his own blood. In fact, it's with his wounds, it's by his wounds that we are healed. He takes us on as his burden and carries us to the place of safety. At great cost to himself, he pays our bill in full so that we can be free from slavery. There is only one true good Samaritan, and his name is Jesus. 
Church, this is what Jesus has done for us. Do you see how Christ has loved you? Do you see how he has saved us? And maybe you're someone who is stuck in a cycle of failing and trying and trying and failing. Maybe you're stuck in that endless cycle of legalism and guilt and pride. One day thinking, I'm doing an okay job. To the next day thinking, I am terrible. I am unworthy of God's salvation. But instead, when we see the true good Samaritan, we can be free from that. We can receive the grace and mercy of God demonstrated to us by Jesus who paid it all so we could be saved. We can leave legalism behind. We can be free of our guilt and our failures and we can let go of our pride because it is through Jesus and Jesus alone that we are made right with God. Isn't this good news? This is the gospel. So do you want to be free? Do you want to be free from the trap of thinking that you might just be good enough? Or free from the crushing weight of knowing that you're not? This is not a message about how to be a good little Christian. This is a message of freedom, of glorious grace and freedom offered to us by the perfect and saving kindness of the Lord Jesus. If you are a Christian here today, crushed by the weight of trying and failing, then Jesus invites you to lay that down and receive his grace. He is our good Samaritan. And if you are not a Christian here today, if you haven't ever trusted the Lord Jesus, then the good news is that this grace and freedom is available to you too by simply realizing that you are in need of the good Samaritan. That sin has left you stripped and beaten and left for dead. Uh, just accept the grace that Jesus offers to you. All the other things that you put your trust in in life will prove to be the priest and Levite and pass you by. But Jesus has not passed you by. And in him you will find safety and healing and freedom. And then... It's only when we have received the grace of Jesus and understand that he has proved himself to be our neighbor. Only then can we come to the final verse where we find a call to action. A call to action. Jesus asks, who proved to be a neighbor to the man? And the lawyer can't even stomach to say the word Samaritan. So he refers to him as the one who showed mercy. And then Jesus says in verse 37, if it weren't for the grace offered to us by him, these would be the most challenging words in the whole Bible. Go and do likewise. Jesus issues his followers with a call to action. And it's only now that we've put the story back in its context and seen that it's really a conversation about eternal life and not just good living, that only now can we address the command of Jesus to go and do likewise. You see, on the, the other side of the coin from legalism, there is an opposite sin called antinomianism. Now, you don't need to remember that word if you don't know it, but it's just a word that means the belief that because we have received the grace of God, that we can do whatever we want to do and go on living. There's no obligation on us. But this is simply not the case. You see, if we really are in God's family, if we really are in Christ, then love for others will be the proof if we really are heirs of eternal life, then we will actively and sacrificially love others. Not because we are trying to earn eternal life, but because we have received eternal life. 
And in churches like yours and mine that hold the Bible in the highest regard, we can sometimes actually be the worst at loving our neighbors in the way Jesus describes here. But for Jesus, love for God and dedication to his word and, and love for others cannot be separated. It is totally possible to be the lawyer and have all the right Bible answers and still miss the point. Our Bible knowledge doesn't feed the hungry or care for the sick or clothe the naked. The kind of love that we possess when we are in Jesus is an act of love. Love that goes toward those in need. Love that isn't just words. You see, Jesus has turned it all on its head, hasn't he? The question shouldn't be, who is my neighbor so I know what I have to do and what I can get away with and who I can love and who I don't have to bother about loving? But the question that we as Christians should be asking ourselves or asking the Lord Jesus is, how do I be a neighbor? How do I be the kind of neighbor that Jesus has been asking me? How do I go and do likewise? You see, the, the lawyer had the appearance of a holy man, a man who loves God. His robes uh, told everyone that he loved God. The prayer box that he wore on his forehead was a symbol of his devotion to God. His very appearance was a statement that he was dedicated to loving God and fulfilling the law, and yet he did not love his neighbor. We have the same appearance, don't we? Now, we don't wear robes or prayer boxes on our heads, but we claim to actually know the living God. We claim to actually have met the Lord Jesus. We claim that Christ is in us and that we are in him. We claim that even though we live in a dead world, we are alive in Christ. But I wonder, do our actions show it? And if this is a challenge for you this morning, well, I'll be uh, down the motorway in a few minutes, back to Belfast. So. <laughs> but I wonder if, like the priest, we are unwilling to cross the road because we don't feel like they are important enough. Or maybe like the priest, we don't cross the road because we don't want to put our, ourselves or our reputations in danger. Or maybe we don't want to deliver ourselves or, or we don't want to uh, align ourselves with, with those uh, dirty sinners, those who vote for a different party than us, those who are from a different race than us, those who have less money than us, But Jesus says, as I have loved you, go and do likewise. Brothers and sisters, this is our call to action this morning. When we are in Jesus, we will love the other. The cross of Jesus has broken down all barriers, which means that we will love our Republican and nationalist neighbors. It means that we will intentionally cross social and racial boundaries to practically serve those in need. The ones that our sense of holiness and self-preservation says that we should have nothing to do with, those are the ones we will go to. When we are in Jesus, and only because we are in Jesus, the vision between uh, different groups is broken down because the cross smashes social and racial and economic barriers to pieces. To go and do likewise means we will love those in need. Our neighbor is anyone who is in need. We will actively serve the widows and the orphans, the poor and the immigrants. Uh, the life of Christians should be marked by an act of love for the least, the last, and the lost. 
We will not pass by anyone in need because Jesus, praise God, did not pass us by. Finally, to go and do likewise means that we will love sacrificially. You know, it cost the Samaritan a lot to love this man, didn't it? And church, I need to be honest with you, loving others and loving those in need will be costly. It's going to cost you money to provide food for the hungry. It's going to cost you time to actively serve those in need. It might even cost you your reputation because you'll be seen loving the wrong kind of person. But if we love others in this way, if we open our homes to those in need, we will always have a seat for for strangers at our table. We will use our oil and wine to put on their wounds. We will use our money to pay their debts. But then the fact is that, that loving in the way of Jesus is costly, but it has to be costly. That's the point. If it's not costing us anything, then we're not really loving. The whole point of love is that it requires something of us. Otherwise, it's just empty words. So church, can I encourage us this morning? Let's not just be uh, people who know the Bible really, really well. Let's be people who, because we love God and because our inheritance is eternal life, uh, be the ones, the types of people who actively and practically and sacrificially serve those in need being ready for every opportunity to display the love that we have received in Jesus. After all, if God had just said the empty words, I love you, we would still be lost. Jesus would never have died. But because of the great love with which he loved us, Jesus became our neighbor. Jesus crossed the road, as it were, He has crossed the boundary of the other. He is infinite, holy God, and we are finite, sinful people, and yet Jesus comes to us. Jesus loved us when we were in need. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And Jesus loved sacrificially at great cost to himself. He gave it all. He gave up the glory of heaven to come to us, to give his life for us, and he paid our debt so that we could be saved. And so because of that, and only because of that, let's go and do likewise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not left us um, without revelation of yourself, without knowledge of yourself, or without instruction. And Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would uh, penetrate our hearts this morning. Lord, that you would comfort those among us who who feel weighed down by that weight of of trying to earn our salvation and yet failure every time. Lord, would you come to them and and offer them again the the, the free grace of the Lord Jesus. Father, I pray for uh, those of us who are um, crushed by pride, thinking that we are good enough. Lord, I pray that you would uh, convict us and help us to see that, that it is only by the grace of the Lord Jesus that we are saved. Father, I pray um, once we have grasped the beauty of the gospel, that you are where our true good Samaritan, that then and only then would we go and do likewise. Lord, I pray that our love for others will be rooted and grounded in you, motivated by your generosity towards us in the gospel. And Father, I pray for anyone hearing my voice who doesn't yet know you, who hasn't yet put their trust in you, would today be the day that you would open their eyes? Lord, would they see Jesus as irresistible and put their trust in him? May your Holy Spirit work in their hearts to raise them from death to life in him.
And Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen.